what is it about villains and bad guys that we find ourselves attracted to? Especially on the silver screen. Our movies are filled with those individuals who are dark and mean, hungry for power and world domination. What is it about these individuals that we find ourselves morbidly curious about? You know who I'm talking about. Figures and characters like Darth Vader from Star Wars. That deep voice, that, that dark armor. It would bring fear and, and would cause me to shiver when I first met him as a young boy in a movie theater. How about some of the others that we know? Going back, bad guys have been around for a while. Norman Bates from Psycho, Alfred Hitchcock's Thriller. Uh, drawing that very, very uh, difficult line between sanity and madness. For those that uh, maybe go back a whole bunch of generations, and even in today, remember the Joker, the Batman's arch nemesis. He's taken on very different looks throughout the years, but that clown-like feature, that diabolical pursuit. Was it about characters like this that we find ourselves attracted to knowing more about them. How about Thanos, the supervillain of the, the Marvel series, bringing balance to the universe through his ruthless pursuit of the Infinity Stones? Now, some of you have no earthly idea what I'm talking about. No clue, someone says, no clue. Of which I give you the Wicked Witch of the West that caused young children for a generation to be fearful. The pointy hat, the very menacing look, the green features, the flying monkeys, all trying to strike fear into the travelers to the world of Oz. And finally, how about Sauron from the literature of Tolkien, that all-seeing eye and desire for dominion over the Middle Earth. What is it about these bad guys these villains? What causes us to be attracted to their story? Why are we captivated by them? Is it because it gives us a glimpse into the darker uh, aspects of human nature? Could it be that they reflect some of the, our own inner struggles that we find ourselves fighting and, and facing? Is it the battle between good and evil? Is it that in most of these, the bad guy, the villain, loses, and goodness, and, and holiness, and rightness triumphs. Could it be that some of our infatuation with these characters, with these figures, is because we ask the question, could I go there? Could I do such things? What would it take for me to be a Darth Vader, to be a Joker, to be a Norman Bates? What, what would have to happen? What type of experiences would I have to face? What potential for greed and envy and betrayal? What lust do I have lying within me that I wonder under different circumstances I might be swayed to those things? Well, we started a series a couple weeks ago focusing in on the life of the disciples. We entitled it, Follow Me. And our goal is to learn and understand what true and real discipleship looks like by examining the lives of these individuals who were so closely associated with Jesus during his time and life and ministry here on the earth. And we come today, of all days, Father's Day, to the bad guy of the group, to the villain of the group, 
that being Judas Iscariot, the man who would betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, and that betrayal would lead to Jesus' arrest, his trial, and then to his crucifixion. What do we need to know about this villain? One writer says he's the ultimate villain. He's the ultimate bad guy, and he puts it this way. He says the following, Judas is the most colossal failure, the most wicked monster in human history. He committed the most horrible act ever, betraying the perfect, sinless, holy son of God for some money. His dark story is the most poignant example of what the human heart is capable of doing. Three years with Jesus Christ, all the time, and his heart was growing harder and harder and more hateful and more hateful all the time. So what are we to do with this figure? Now I understand today is a glorious day. Today is a day to celebrate dads. But my message will have no jokes. My message won't have any funny Father's Day videos. But I believe that what we have is incredibly beneficial before us. And yes, we'll get to our celebrating of of dads even as uh, we head out to the patio. But before we do that, let's do some examining. Remember this series is built for the desired outcome of examining the disciples' lives, seeking to, in our examination, find something we can emulate. As we look at the life of Judas, I gotta be honest with you, there's nothing to emulate. There's nothing there where I'll be like, you know what? This seems like we could take this. So dads and all those in the audience today, take this, what Judas does, and goes home. In fact, I would say the exact opposite. There is much in Judas's life, most of Judas's life is something we should examine and not do at all. But in and of that, that's where the examining takes place. So as we examine the life of Judas, we're gonna see a whole bunch of things that we need to examine in our own life and make sure we're not going the way of Judas. To do so, we need to look at this man's life and understand him a little bit more. To do that, we're going to do it under three uh, simple headings. Number one, and they all have to do with us, because as we put ourselves in Judas's shoes, we will see that we find ourselves in very similar places, and that is number one, we have been given a great opportunity. We, here in the 21st century, have been given a great opportunity. That probably is the most truest of statements about Judas. He was given a great opportunity. Now, we're going to be in the scriptures here in in a little bit, but I'm going to give you a lot of scripture between now and then. And for the sake of time, we're going to write these down. And so write these passages down in Matthew chapter 10, Mark chapter 3, and Luke chapter 6. All of the gospel writers here declare that Judas is one of the 12 disciples. That is that Jesus uh, chose him, Jesus called him, and they followed. And at minimum, we can say Judas did that right. He followed the calling of Jesus. He saw something in Jesus. We don't know what it was. We can start to discern that as life goes on for Judas. But he makes a decision to follow Jesus. And he is there for the totality of Jesus's earthly life, which would have constituted three and a half years. We're going to learn that during his time, he would be a part of everything that Jesus does as the 12 did. He specifically would serve as the treasurer, which we'll learn about in the passage we'll read in a moment. 
the treasurer of the disciples' money. But we know that while Judas goes through all of these great opportunities, he makes a decision to betray Jesus. He does so with a kiss on the heels of the Lord's Supper. He goes and he betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, which leads to Jesus' death, burial, and subsequent resurrection. During that time of his death, Judas doesn't like what he's done. He is regretful. He's remorseful for what he has done. Takes the money that he was given for the betrayal back to the chief priests. They don't want it. And he is so filled with shame and sorrow that he commits suicide by hanging himself. Now what in the world are we to garner from this story? There's a ton. But to do so, let's understand who Judas is. Judas, coming from the Hebrew name Judah, literally means praised, praised. Now there's one of two ways that commentaries believe this could be. It's a reflection, first of all, they start with, of mom and dad. And they say when Judah, Judas is born, the parents look at the gift that God has given and they praise God for it. That Judas is a constant reminder to praise God for the gift of their son, and that could be the case. But this word in the Hebrew, praise, literally is seeing something and exclaiming, wow. Judah, Judas, would be to look at something like the Grand Canyon, and your first response is the exclamation, wow. This is amazing. And so some commentators wonder, could Judas have been such a beautiful child that the parents looked at him and exclaimed, wow, praise. It's what my parents did when they saw me, right? So some think it's a representation of the parents and their love for God. Others say it could have been that Judas was just this magnificent and good-looking child. We had spoken of that of Moses, by the way, uh, in the book of Hebrews, that there was something very special and attractive about Moses. We don't know. But what we know of Judas is his second name, Iscariot. Iscariot. And that tells us where he's from. Iscariot is derived from the Hebrew word ish-karioth, that is literally Judas, Iscariot is Judas, man of Karioth. Karioth was in the southern part of the kingdom of Israel, in the land of Judah, which might be another reason why he was named that, Judah, Judas, as uh, the same root name. But we need to understand something about the geography and what we see might tell us a little bit more about the story of Judas. Notice here at the bottom of the screen, this is modern day Israel. At the bottom of the screen you have the starting point. That, that little dot there at the bottom there below the word Israel is Kerioth. It's way down in the south of Israel. Now you take that line, that stray line as the crow flies, to that other point, the destination, and that's Galilee. In fact, that's the Sea of Galilee right to the right of it. At the north part of the Sea of Galilee is the city or the town of Capernaum. Capernaum is where Peter, James, and John, and Andrew are from. Many believe Thomas was probably from uh, the land and area of Galilee and Capernaum. Most of the disciples found their space in northern 
Israel. In fact, just to the left of that top dot there is the city of Nazareth, where Jesus is, of course, from his hometown. Now, there's a great distance. It's about 140 miles, which my car isn't as big of a deal. That's getting into central Illinois for us. But for them, that's a world apart. And one commentator says that the distance that Judas had from the other disciples geographically is what we see he has relationally with the disciples as well. And let's just be honest, it could be that he wasn't a part of the good old boy club, that he wasn't a part of the hometown group, that he was different. He was probably farther away than any other disciple was from a geographical standpoint. Now, here's where the great opportunity is. Jesus had called Judas and the 12, and so Judas has the opportunity to walk with Jesus, to talk with Jesus, to learn directly from Jesus, to witness all of Jesus' miracles, to hear all of Jesus' teachings, to experience the public view of Jesus and the private place of Jesus, to experience his love, his grace firsthand. He had been chosen by Jesus himself to be in an intimate, vibrant, and healthy walk with him. What an opportunity. And the story of Judas is opportunity squandered. So here we are, self-described followers of Jesus Christ. And let me ask this question this morning. Are we like Judas who are squandering our opportunity, the opportunity of a lifetime to get as close and personal with Jesus? Judas had things that were more important to him. Judas had things that uh, deserved in his mind, his time, his attention, his energy. And are we not tempted in that way? To push away the greatest opportunity we have to follow and live in in, in deep relationship with Jesus. And the reason why we're squandering that opportunity is because we're too busy doing a great many other things. Judas had the opportunity to get close to Jesus, and we do as well. The question is, will we be like Judas, or will we follow the words of Jesus who says, abide in me, get close to me. Stay connected with me. We have been given great opportunity. The question is, will we like Judas squander it? Number two, number two, we must always be evaluating our spiritual reality. Judas never does this. There's never a point where Judas stops takes stock of his life, and examines it. Now, there's great times of opportunity that Jesus gives for this, but he never does. Now, it's easy for us to take Judas and make a monster out of him, to demonize him. And we do this so often with people who sin publicly and grievously. Phrases like this come out of our mouths. How could they? Why would they? And all of that is altogether unbiblical because it is us getting on our high horse And casting judgment on someone, if it weren't for the grace of God, we would be there as well. And so I want you to understand and know that Judas is a cautionary tale to a wife wasted on sin instead of invested on a Savior. And it begs the question this morning, is that true of you? Is that true of me? To examine, to do what Judas didn't do, let's let's look at some things. 
Write these down. These are so important, and I pray they will serve as an examining of our own hearts as it has been for me this week. And the first one thing we need to examine is we cannot equate doing with being. We can't equate doing with being. That's what Judas does. He has a mathematical problem in his head. If I am doing stuff for God, therefore I'm in relationship with God. If I'm doing stuff for Jesus, then I'm in a relationship with Jesus. Understand this. Judas did lots of ministry. In the three and a half years, he was always with Jesus, engaged in lots of spiritual activities. Judas sat under the best teaching. He experienced the best fellowship. He saw the greatest signs and wonders. He had the opportunity for the greatest spiritual highs that any camp or retreat experience would ever give us. He was a part of all of that. But he never made it his own. He never internalized it. He never took what he saw, what was being done, and made it a part in the very fabric of who he was. So let's stop and ask this. Are you doing the same thing? Am I? Am I doing a lot of things, religious things, holy things, church things? Am I doing them and then saying I'm in a relationship with Jesus? Am I equating doing religious things as being a follower of Christ, being a Christian? Am I subscribing to a religious program or am I involved in a personal relationship? Well, how do you know? How do you know if you're doing these things? Well, do the test. Take away all of your doing. All of the stuff that you do because you're a part of this church. This church does a lot of stuff. And take all that away and ask, once I strip all that away, what's left? If I'm not asked to study my Bible for small group, am I studying my Bible? If I'm not asked to serve at the church, am I serving without being asked? If Pastor Tim doesn't say, open my Bibles, am I opening my Bible? If Pastor Josh doesn't say, let's stand and sing, am I singing to the Lord? What I mean by all of this is, do you need others to set up the program, and that is the totality of your relationship with Jesus Christ? Or do you find yourself, just because you love Jesus opening his word, just because you love Jesus praying to him, just because you love Jesus singing to him, just because you love Jesus living like him and serving others as he did? Or is it because you've bought into a program as Judas did and you think, well, just because I'm busy at church makes me a Christian. It didn't work for Judas and it will not work for us. Now, does that mean that all that Judas did was bad? No. But this is where the prophet Isaiah says, even our righteous deeds are but filthy rags unless we're engaged in a personal and intimate relationship with the Savior who saves us. Don't equate doing with being. Number two, question we need to ask. What stuff will cause me to sell Jesus out? What stuff in this world will cause me to sell Jesus out? 
Turn your Bibles to John chapter 12, okay? I told you we'd get there, so let's get there. John chapter 12. And in John chapter 12, we don't get a lot about Judas in the Gospels, but here Judas enters the stage. And I think this is going to help us answer what stuff caused Judas to sell Jesus out. And I don't know if many of us have ever made the connection of the two. So my heading says in my Bible, Mary anoints Jesus at Bethany, and it goes like this. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with Jesus at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him said, why is this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now stop there. Judas speaks up. It's one of the first times we hear Judas's voice. And we stop and we're like, not a bad question. Because if we really think about what Mary did, there's some waste that is here. And here's the waste. John says she anoints the feet. Matthew goes on and says she anoints his whole body. And as a result of that, waste the bottle on Jesus. And let's be honest. Even if we love Jesus, we could say that was a waste. And here's why. Because Jesus' feet are going to get dirty and smelly soon. And so let's think about the best use of, of, of money. It might not be that in a couple days that smell is gone. Let's give it to the poor, he says. And in giving to the poor, that might produce some life change. That might produce a, a, lot, of, a lot of great things. So right off the bat, we sit there and say, John has declared this because Judas is concerned about the ministry. But John goes on and notice what he says. Verse 6, he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Now stop there. The reason why Judas brings this up is Judas says, if we give it to the poor... That means it goes through my hands because I'm the one who distributes the money and that would go into the benevolence account. The benevolence account goes into the money bag and notice John says the reason why Judas is upset, the reason why Judas brings this up is now he's not gonna get his hands on it. He's not gonna be able to steal from it. Notice he had the money bags and he would take from it for his own selfish desires. It is here that Jesus rebukes uh, uh, Judas and says, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. Now I want you to turn for a moment to Matthew because Matthew makes a connection that I think is really important. Matthew chapter um, 26. Matthew 26. And this is the connection that we need to understand. So in Matthew 26, starting in verse 6, my Bible says, Jesus anointed at Bethany. So what's the episode? The same episode that John has just declared. 
And he tells a very similar story. Not exactly the same, but we know this is, this is the exact thing. Uh, we don't have Judas being called out. It's, it just says, Matthew says, a disciple, a disciple said this. Jesus' response is the same. Uh, the poor will always be with you. Um, this ointment is used for my body. So that's all through till verse 13. Now notice verse 14. Matthew uses this word, then. Then. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, what will you give me if I deliver Jesus over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver, and from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray Jesus. What's the correlation here? The correlation that Matthew is making is that Jesus and his disciples got in the way of Judas's real agenda. Judas's real agenda is he loved money. He couldn't get enough of it. And he saw 300 denarii go right through his fingers and he's like, listen, Jesus is screwing this up for me. Jesus is putting a damper on what I'm really about. And so instead of giving up what I'm really about and finding forgiveness and grace and mercy, I'm going to get rid of Jesus. I'm going to sell Jesus out. And notice what the Pharisees' question is, the chief religious leaders of the day, what their question is. I'm sorry, Judas asked this question. Judas asked this question. What will you give me to betray him? Listen to me. What, what is being spoken there by Judas is our earthly, sinful flesh and sinful desires speaking. And each and every day, my friends, do you know that you are asking yourself that question? What would it, be, what would it take to betray Jesus? What would it betray my faith? What would it mean to give up on my testimony? What would it take for me to humiliate my Savior, to humiliate other Christians? What would it take for Judas, it was a sum of money. For some of you, it's sex. For some of you, it's power. For some of us, it's prestige, it's popularity, it's security. And the devil is constantly tempting us with this question, what will it take? What will it take? And brothers and sisters, if we don't grab a hold of that, there will be a day where someone will offer us what we're looking for. And we'll betray Jesus. We'll give up Jesus because really our Savior, our Lord is that thing. It's that thing. And the chief priests said, we'll pay the price. And some of us have done great damage to our faith, to our relationship with Jesus Christ because we had stuff that would cause us to sell out Jesus. And the devil knows this. And the devil is tempting us with those things over and over again. There, there's an old story that was told years ago, ancient story, about a young man who gave his soul up for the love of a woman. That story would be done in two movies, both by the name of Bedazzled, one in the late 60s and one in recent days. And the storyline goes that this young man is willing to sell his soul to the devil for the love of a woman. And the problem is, is that in selling his soul, the man never truly gets what he's looking for. 
He never truly gets it. And the storyline is, is had he stayed with God, he would have gotten everything and so much more. But he sells his soul to the devil and this odyssey of events and times shows him he will never get it. Why? Because the devil's a liar. Some of you are willing to sell Jesus out for a lie. For a lie. You think you're getting something, but in the end, you're not getting anything that you desired. What will you What will cause you to sell out Jesus? Number three, don't mistake God's long-suffering or patience for license. Don't mistake God's long-suffering for license. During all this time, Judas is doing his thing. He's living a lie. Jesus is preaching to him, and Judas is there nodding in tacit approval. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah, yeah. But nothing is changing him. None of the disciples know that Judas is who he is. But at no point does Jesus call Judas out and say, listen, Judas, you're on the wrong path. Listen, Judas, what you're doing is wrong. Listen, Judas, you're heading down the road to betrayal and you better cease and desist or something terrible is going to happen to you. He never does that. And some people think that What that means, if Jesus, if God doesn't speak directly to our situation, then he must not care, or he must not be too offended. But I'm here to tell you that Jesus said a great many things to Judas and the disciples in a general sense that should have stopped Judas in his track. In fact, I'll give you two that come right at the, if you will, the porch of Judas's betrayal. The front door, right before Judas enters the front door of his betrayal, on the porch, Jesus has three sermons that he gives to his disciples. The first one is in the upper room where he talks about the vine and the branches. And he says, listen, if you're not abiding in me and I in you, I will cut you off and I will throw you away. And then uh, just before that, Jesus gives the parable of the fig tree. He curses the fig tree. And both of these are pictures that if you are not bearing fruit for Jesus, if you're not abiding in Jesus, you will be cut down and you'll be thrown out. And he goes even farther, you'll be thrown into the fire. And Judas never stops and takes these general sermons of Jesus to the disciples and appropriates it to himself. I am speaking to a group of people that are hearing a general sermon about the warnings of turning away from the God whom we are called to love, and you are not appropriating it, it does not give you an excuse to keep doing what you're doing. The job as disciples is to take what we hear and ask the question, is that me? In fact, when Jesus says to the disciples after, uh, uh, or at the, at the Lord's, uh, the, the Last Supper in the upper room, he says, one of you is about to betray me. And I want you to notice 11 of them asked the question, is it me? Is it me? Could it be me? And I wonder if they're thinking through life going, it could be me. Oh my goodness, why? I don't want to betray Jesus. I, I know I failed Jesus, but, but I don't want to do that. What is Judas doing? He's getting close to Jesus and Judas is being told, go do what you're going to do quickly. If we are not examining our lives, God in his long-suffering and patience is giving us an opportunity to repent 
Are you taking those opportunities? Next one, we need to get moving here. Regret and repentance are very different things. Regret and repentance are very different things. So Jesus, sorry, Judas betrays Jesus. And in Matthew 27, three through five, it tells us that Judas regrets his decision. He regrets his betrayal. Most scholars and, and, and uh, commentaries believe that uh, Judas has seen some aspects of Jesus' trial, his flogging, and maybe even his crucifixion. Maybe it's by Friday night, a day of thinking about what he's done, that he's come to his senses. And so he takes the money back, the 30 pieces of silver. He goes back to the chief priest. He gives it to him. They say, we don't want it. And in such shame and sorrow and regret, Judas goes out by himself and he hangs himself. And you're like, well, listen, Judas got it. And no doubt there was repentance there. And I would say, no, there's not. There's no evidence of repentance whatsoever. There's regret, there's remorse, but no repentance. Here's the difference between the two. Regret leads you to isolation. Repentance leads you to Jesus. Regret leads you to sorrow and shame. Repentance leads you to the Savior. Regret and remorse leads you to destruction. Repentance leads you to deliverance. And so here, he's regretful. He's remorseful. But he never repents. Maybe today you find yourself sinning as Judas did. And here's the thing. You may be like, my goodness, my sin is so bad. What I've done is so heinous. We sang this morning, our sins, they are many, but we don't stop there. We continued and said, but his mercy is more. I like what one individual put it in when he said this. He said the following, what a mistake those who do not hope to make. Judas made a colossal blunder the day he sold Christ for 30 denarii. But he made an even bigger one when he thought his sin was too great to be forgiven. No sin is too big. Any wretchedness, however great, can always be enclosed in infinite mercy. I want you to know something. As terrible as betraying Jesus was, Jesus would have received Judas with open arms. And he would have received what you and I receive, and that is the grace and forgiveness. That why, if we confess our sins, Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. But he didn't. And some of us are living in regret and remorse, but it's not leading us to repentance. It's not leading us to Jesus. So what this means is, in the next one, pursuing sin instead of the Savior has disastrous results. And right away you're going to go to, well, he hanged himself. That's not the disastrous results. That's ugly and that's heinous. But write this passage down, Matthew 26, 24. Matthew 26, 24, Jesus says this, probably the most damning statement uh, Jesus will ever make of a human being. I, I would say maybe the most damning statement that all of the Bible would make of a human being. And it's this. Jesus said it would have been better that Judas not been born at all. It would have been better that Judas not been born at all. 
And you hear that, and again, we're like, wow, Judas, what a terrible, terrible individual. But can I tell you, I think that's true of anybody who dies apart from Jesus. Because you get 50, 60, 70 years, maybe 100 if you're lucky, and you live life for yourself, and you enjoy the good, the bad, and ugly that life gives both to the believer and non-believer alike. So you live that life, and then you die, and you're appointed to die once, and then you approach judgment, and you stand before the living and true God. And in that moment, you know you lived for self instead of the Savior that came to die and to give you eternal life. And you are consigned to a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And you know you are there because you made a decision to follow self instead of the Savior. I do wonder this morning, my friends, if not every soul that is in torment and hell today isn't saying it would have been better I'd never been born at all. Following and pursuing sin instead of your Savior leads you to disastrous results. Now, I'd like to close this point, but I can't because I know there are some of you saying, wait a minute. There's some theological geeks out there that are like, hey, Badal, you're leaving something on the table, and let me give you one final one to, to help them and to help others, and that's this final point. While we make choices, while we make choices, God is always in control. So some of you are out there saying, wait a minute, to talk about Judas and not to address this would be criminal, Tim. The Old Testament scriptures are full of that Jesus' closest disciples, one of them would betray him. He would betray them, betray Jesus with a kiss. It even gets that, that particular. And so if it was written in Old Testament scripture, if God had his plan in place that one of the disciples is going to do it and Judas is doing it, then Judas can't be put on trial for it. God made him do it. All Judas was was a robot. All Judas was was a pawn. He was this character, this actor in God's meta narrative story of redemption. We needed a foil and God produces it in Judas. And here's the thing. That's absolutely biblical. God did purpose Judas. God did plan Judas to do that. God chose Judas for that. And we can't take that away. That's a biblical statement. It's a biblical truth. But to stop there is unbiblical. Because to say that Judas did it because God made him isn't the right answer. That's maybe part of the biblical answer. That's the sovereignty of God answer but then we have to ask the question did Judas have a part in this and the answer is yes Mark chapter 14 let's look at it very quickly Mark chapter 14 10 and 11 then Judas Iscariot who was one of the 12 went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them and when they heard it they were glad and promised to give him money and he sought on on an opportunity to betray him I have boldened the action steps that Judas, Judas took He went to the chief priest. He wasn't forced to do that. He made a decision, a decision to betray Jesus. He looked for an opportunity. That word sought is a continual searching after. It wasn't a one-time crime. He was working premeditated in his heart. I'm going to find a time and a place that's perfect to betray Jesus. So he sought an opportunity to betray him. 
Brothers and sisters, our actions can never thwart the purposes and plans of God, but never think that you are just a pawn. Your decisions and my decisions have real consequences. They are our decisions. We are free to make those decisions and we will carry the consequence. We are without excuse. Judas is without an excuse and yet his evil diabolical plan was a part of the purposes and plans from God from the beginning of the age. And you're like, what in the world? How do I, how do I equate that? How do I, how do I make that work? The answer is you can't this side of heaven. So you hold those two things in utter tension. God is sovereign and we are responsible. So what do we do with all this? I need to close. The final thing is we must follow Jesus with total authenticity. Judas, his original sin was not betrayal. His original sin wasn't the love of money. His original sin, listen to me, was hypocrisy. He did not let the world around him know the real him. Listen, Judas was a part of a small group. There were 11 others, or 12 others in his group, including Jesus. Judas had the best small group leader. They had the best times of discussion and prayer times and all that. And Judas sat there and he never allowed the real him to come out. And can I tell you that sin of Judas is alive and well in some of our lives today that we will not allow because of security, because of of pride, uh, because of, of private sin. We never allow the real us to come out. And so the people who are around us, the disciples never thought Judas would be the one to betray him. Even when Judas gets up and heads out from the upper room, they still are giving him the benefit of the doubt because they think they know Judas. How many of those that are closest to us have no earthly idea of who the real us is? The private battles we're facing, the private feelings we're dealing with, the idiosyncrasies and the struggles that we're dealing with on a daily basis and the people closest to us because we will, like Judas, not let them in, have no idea. This is a sin. And this is a sin because it leads to a great many other sins. His hypocrisy and his privatization of his life, this double life he lives, gives opportunity for a foothold for the devil. And I will tell you, it will do the same in your life. So how do we eradicate it? Very two very quick things. Number one, we have to live in true community. That is, we have to be honest and open enough to let people see who we really are our thoughts and our feelings, our fears, our sins and temptations, the things that that we think that, that we shouldn't tell people, we should be telling people, and here's why. I would rather people judge me for the real me than be judged one day and sent to hell because I faked everybody out. Finally, it means we've gotta be involved in confession. At no point in Judas's life do we ever see a word of confession. And confession is what saves us from the life of Judas. To say, could this be me? Is there an offensive thing in me? Jesus, am I, am I believing and doing and thinking and acting in a way that is ungodly? I, I, I ask for your forgiveness. I, I confess that to you. I confess that to others. And the Bible says that God is faithful and just to forgive us.
Judas didn't experience forgiveness, not because Jesus was not faithful, it was because he was unwilling to ask for it. And how many sins and how many faults and how many issues are we holding on to, living in despair, because we won't confess them to the one whose mercy is more. So give your sins and give your struggles and give the battles that you have to the Lord. Ask for others to help hold you accountable and to encourage you in that journey so that in this decision that we've made to follow Jesus, we won't turn back from him.